Well, if you have a Bible, feel free to open up to the New Testament letter of the Colossians. We're going to take a break from our study through John for the next few weeks as we kind of focus in on the Advent season. And we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in front of you, hopefully in the pew. It's on page 1168 in your pew Bible. And if you were opening up in your copy of God's Word and you have no idea where Colossians is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. Or you'll start, you'll get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You keep flipping to the right and you'll see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And we're going to be in the very first chapter and look for the little number verse 15. That's the verse that we're going to focus in on this morning as we look to God's Word and we start considering uh, the Advent season. And so this morning, while you're opening up there to Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to tell you a story, like I normally do. So in A.D. 348, a boy was born in northern Spain, not long after Christianity had been legalized in the Roman Empire after three centuries of persecution. In 313, the Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan and said that Christianity was now allowed in the Roman Empire. And so just a few years later, 35 years later to be exact, this boy was born in northern Spain. And the boy's name was Aurelius Clemens Prudentius. That's a good Roman Empire name, Aurelius Clemens Prudentius. And he would grow up to be a lawyer and provincial governor in Spain and would later be appointed to an imperial military post by the Roman emperor Theodosius, who is regarded as a champion of Christian orthodoxy and helped stamp out paganism and would also be key in helping spread the orthodoxy of the Council of Nicaea, which had been called by Constantine in 325 AD. That responded to the Trinitarian heresy known as Arianism. And shortly after this young man had been, uh, uh, received this imperial appointment, Prudentius became a Christian and began writing poetry. And actually today we still have over 400 of his poems He's, called, he's been called by some scholars the Prince of Early Christian Poets. And at age 57, he retired from government service and he actually entered into a monastery and he continued to write. And one of the poems he originally wrote in Latin was later translated into English in 1854. And the resulting poem became the Christmas hymn of the Father's Love Begotten that we actually opened up with this morning. And we're going to use this beloved hymn over the next few weeks as the framework for our Advent sermon series as we celebrate the first Advent, the coming of Jesus in flesh, the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And there's a word in this hymn that we don't use a lot in our daily conversations. At least I haven't heard y'all bring it up very often when we're just kind of talking and hanging out. And that is the word begotten. And it comes from the Greek word monogenes, which is only begotten. So mono, only one, and then genes, begotten. So that's where you get kind of an amalgamation of those two words. And this word is found in Psalm 2, which we looked at earlier on. This is Messianic Psalm. It's also used in Luke. It's used in Hebrews chapter 1 and and chapter 5. It's used in 1 John, and we will see it here. And theologically, it's the concept of eternal generation. And I was looking up for kind of just a quick, succinct definition of begotten, and I found one on the OPC website, and here's what they wrote. He said, the doctrine of eternal generation can simply, and in parentheses, hopefully not simplistically, 
be stated just like this. Just as a human father communicates his essence, his humanity to his son, so the father communicates his essence, his deity to his son. And again, the Nicene Creed in 325, we were very careful to talk about the deity of Christ. It says, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And I have to admit, though, the idea of begotten is kind of a mystery. And I'll never understand it, but I humbly accept it because that's how the Son is described throughout Scripture and throughout church history. I may not fully understand this whole begottenness thing. Um, but it's, it's how the Son is described. And so we just affirm what uh, Scripture teaches and also what church history has accepted. And here's what the Belgic Confession says. Again, we in kind of the Reformed world, we love old creeds and confessions. We are a confessional denomination. And here's what the Belgic Confession says. He says, We believe that Jesus Christ, according to His divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created, for then he would be a creature, but co-essential and co-eternal with the Father, the very image of his substance and the effulgence of his glory, equal to him in all things. He is the Son of God, not only from the time that he assumed our nature, but from all eternity. Yet, as we have discussed before and in Sunday school the, fa- the past few weeks, and a fully divine, eternal Christ is absolutely essential to Christian orthodoxy, a biblical view of atonement, an understanding of salvation and the gospel. And as we begin our journey to the manger, we need to zoom out. And we need to remember who it actually was who came in flesh to tabernacle among us. The fully divine, eternal Son of God, who was begotten by the Father ere the worlds began to be. He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending, He, as the hymn of the Father's Love Begotten says. We're going to focus in on that little phrase from the hymn, of the Father's Love Begotten, ere before the worlds began to be. And so, with that in our mind, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. We're going to read verses 15 to 20. Let's give attention to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. I'm thankful for that. And may we pray and ask the Lord to help us receive this word by faith. Please pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our hearts. Lord, help us to hear your words and receive them by faith. And Christ, may you receive all glory this morning for all that you have done. Please meet us here and be with us, O Lord, and comfort and encourage our hearts. Even convict our hearts if you see fit. And we pray these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, back when I was in high school, I lived in Greenwood, South Carolina. 
And one of the things that I grew up going to Emerald Junior High that over the course of my time actually converted into Emerald High School. And so there was one year where I went to, I went to seventh grade in one school, I went to eighth grade in another school, and then I came back to that first school for nine through 12 as it swept, flipped over into a high school. And so I was there as they were kind of adding on to the building. And one of the things that we noticed is, you know, there's just a lot of construction going on. They were kind of adding a wing over my first year as it was moving over into a high school. They needed some extra space and extra room. And so there was a lot of construction going on, as you can imagine. And I remember looking out the window and seeing this massive, huge guy out on the construction site working each and every day. Come to find out, it was Refrigerator Perry of the Chicago Bears. He was, he was working and owned a construction company, and he was actually out there working each and every day. I did not know a human being could be that big. He is called Refrigerator Perry for a reason. He was massive, big old guy. And this one day I remember we were sitting there, and we were kind of looking out and kind of watching things take shape. And he had a couple of his crew, and they were trying to kind of pull a piece of concrete out of the ground. You know, they were kind of breaking some old stuff up and trying to basically just move this big thing. And there were three or four guys kind of down in, down in there trying to move this, this big rock out of the way. And with astonishment, we watched Refrigerator Perry go into that hole and pick the thing up by himself and carry it out. And the rest of us were looking at each other going, that guy might be Superman. He was huge and so strong. And you're looking at the task that was at hand, and the thing that they all recognized is that that was a job that only the big guy could handle. That was something that Refrigerator Perry, he could, he could do it. It was a job for the big guy, and he comes over. As we think about the ad, you're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Okay, now, number one, it's a cool story. I got to see Refrigerator Perry. That was pretty neat. He was huge. I cannot even tell you how huge he was. You're like, pick the, pick the former NFL player. Like, oh, that guy. And so as we enter the Advent season, we need to remember that this whole season revolves around the admission that we can't save ourselves. It's actually the entry point into Christianity. It's a thing that you have to recognize. You actually have to take a vow. The, you know, when you come and join our church, the very first question is you have to admit you're bad. You know, that I'm a sinner and I, apart from Jesus, I cannot save myself. And so this whole season revolves around that admission. You see, you don't need a manger if it all comes down to your merit. You don't need a savior if you're self-sufficient. If you can do it all on yourself, you don't need a savior. If you think that it all hinges on your merit and what you bring, then you don't need a manger. You're relying on yourself. And this is what makes the incarnation good news. We could not do it on our own. So someone else came and did it for us. It's simultaneously offensive and comforting news. Offensive, you can't save yourself, you can't work hard enough to do it. That's offensive. What do you mean I can't do it? I'm an American. I can just buckle up my chin strap and try harder. It doesn't work like that. It's very offensive, but also comforting. That I can't do it. I admit that I can't. So someone else came and did it for me. That's huge news. It changes absolutely everything. You think about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, which is something that, of definitely a verse that we like to talk about this time of year, and rightfully so. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And we think about this work of salvation, we think about the incarnation of Christ. It was a job that only the big guy could handle. 
to live the perfectly righteous life that God's holiness required and die the death for sin that God's holiness demanded. It was was only something that Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man, He's the only one who could do it. And we think about Him coming into the world. And so when you hear or see the words Advent or Christmas, you should immediately equate them with the words grace and mercy. It was all part of the rescue plan for a fallen humanity, for a bunch of people that could not save themselves. It is a rescue plan of God speaking and moving into the darkness and sending His Son. And so you think about this, kind, this time of year, and people love to say, Jesus is the reason for the season. Okay, fair enough. And the who is definitely important. The who, Jesus, is the reason for the season. Yes, absolutely. But have you ever asked the question, why is he the reason? That's the bigger question. And so we're going to look at two big points this morning if you're a note-taking type of person. We're going to see who came to save us and why he came to save us. Pretty simple. Who came to save us? We're going to look at the who and the why. So who came to save us? and why he came to save us. So let's look at that first point this morning. Who came to save us? Now this beloved passage reads almost like an ancient hymn or creed or a psalm. It's, it's beloved and memorized and been set to song many, many times, and, and rightfully so. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. And verse 15 tells us something very interesting about Jesus. Look at verse 15 as we open up. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here's what Kent Hughes said in his commentary. He says, Thus Christ, as the image of the invisible God, is not just a plaster representation of Him, but the revelation of what God is really like. The writer of Hebrews expressed the same thought in very powerful language. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Chapter 1, verse 3. The Greek word translated exact imprint here meant the impress left by a die or a coin or a seal on wax. He is the exact impress or impression of the essence of God. You see, that's Jesus Christ. And the Greek word translated firstborn, protokos here, refers refers to the highest position of honor. And when you cross reference it with the Hebrew word bechor, and the line of ancient Near Eastern Jewish thought that Paul would have been well versed in, you see that he is talking about this is the highest position of honor. Psalm 89 verse 27 says, And I will make him the firstborn, there's our word, the highest of the kings of the earth. Paul is saying that Christ deserves the highest honor because he is supreme in and over creation. And verse 16 gives us even more insight into the might and power of Christ. Look at what verse 16 says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now you hear this, and this may remind you of the opening of John's gospel. Remember that John's gospel opens with the prologue, verses 1 through 18. In chapter 1, but verses 1 through 5, it kind of sounds very similar, which opens with a similar description of the divinity of Christ and his work in creation that all things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were created through him, by him, and through him. All things were created. 
It's a very interesting thing if you're kind of a, a grammar nerd. The, the verb is in the perfect tense. And so what that means is it's a completed action in the past with ongoing effects into the present. Like, for example, I have believed. And so that happened. There was a time when you didn't believe, and now you do. Completed action in the past with ongoing effects into the future and even or up until the present. And so John chapter 1, verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. As we talked about before in the Nicene Creed, talked about the heresy of Arianism. And we see that definitely taught, especially with today's Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses would argue that Jesus is a created being. Ancient heresy called Arianism, just microwaved all over again. But this would mean that Jesus was not present when he himself was created, thus violating the not anything made clause in John 13. Everything was made through him. Not one thing was made without him. And look at verse 17. It doubles down on this. It says, he is before all things. And the second half of that verse is also really good news for us today. Because look at what verse 17 says, the second half. It says, all things, it says, and he is before all things, and in him, what? All things hold together. That's good news. Good news for us this morning when we think about that. Again, the perfect tense is used. Completed action with ongoing effects. In him, all things were made and all things hold together. That's still true today. Now, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Again, that's that same uh, thought going on in Colossians 1. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here's, where, here's why this is good news. This is why this is more than just like a, a neat little theological thing to hold on to. This is why this is good news for us this morning when we think about the second half of verse 17. Because regardless of how the world lo looks now, all of it is still held together by Christ and allows us all to rest and trust in him regardless of the circumstances. Something that you could remind yourself of throughout the day. And there's even a Twitter account that I follow, and this guy posts this every single morning. He says, rest well, Christians. He holds all things together. Something that you can remind yourself of and be encouraged about, especially throughout the day. Remind yourself, he holds all things together. When life looks scary, he holds all things together. When life is good, he holds all things together. When life is difficult, he holds all things together. When you are afraid or anxious or sick or whatever, he holds all things together. A good reminder for us this morning, we think about Jesus Christ and who he is. He holds all things together because all things were created through him. And so again, we're asking the question as we're thinking about the Advent season, who is it that actually came? Who came the preeminent, transcendent, fully divine, eternal Son of God? And you think about where he entered into. Entered into a land that was covered with spiritual darkness. And on them, on us, a light has shone. And you think about the difference between a holy God and a sinful fallen world. And it makes you ask the question, why would Jesus ever come in the first place? It, it, it doesn't make sense. Why would this preeminent, holy, set-apart, co-eternal, fully divine Son of God, why in the world would He ever come? 
and enter into our mess? That's our second question. That's our second point. The who came to save us and why he came to save us. That's our second point. You see, in the eyes of the world, the incarnation makes absolutely no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. You think about this, a king lacking nothing, needing nothing, willingly leaves the throne to seek out and die for his enemies. Makes no sense when you think about the incarnation. But that's exactly what happened. And you'll never discover this. You know, you see like the Hallmark movies and you read the, you know, you see the Christmas books and it all talks about like the Christmas magic that Buddy the Elf talks about. Every Hallmark movie is kind of searching after him, looking for this Christmas magic. You see, the, the Christmas season, the Christmas magic is never going to make sense to you until you recognize just how helpless and rebellious you were apart from Christ. That's what makes it tick. When you look and go, why in the world would you ever enter into this? Why me? That's what makes the message of Advent and the message of the Incarnation just come alive. That's what makes it hopeful when you think about this. Because the Nicene Creed says, for us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. Makes absolutely no sense. This king who lacked nothing and needed nothing, willingly leaving the throne to die in the place of his enemies so that they could become part of his family. It makes absolutely no sense. But that's what the gospel message is, and we, we rest in that. But here's the thing. We think we're pretty good people on our own. We think that we don't need a manger. We don't think we need a manger. We think we need a manager. We just need a manager. Somebody to kind of protect our image when we fail. We don't need a manger. We think we're pretty good. I just need a manager. That's what I need. Somebody that, like, when I mess up, they'll come along and kind of tidy up behind me. But true Christians admit that they are failures. <laughs> they are failures, which is exactly why we need a manger, which is exactly why we need an incarnate Christ. Here's what Tim Keller said in his excellent little book, Hidden Christmas. I highly encourage it. Here's what Tim Keller wrote. He said, Christmas means... Not just hope for the world, despite all its unending problems, but hope for you and me, despite all our unending failings. A God who was only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together, that we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with Him. A deity that was all-accepting and all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. You think about the reality on the ground. This is the thing that makes the incarnation so magical, if we want to say. A thing that grips our hearts, that grabs our affections. It only makes sense if we really realize and, and affirm the reality on the ground that we can't save ourselves and that we are in desperate need of God coming in flesh to rescue and redeem us. You have to admit that. And then all of a sudden, the diamond of the gospel starts to sparkle when you realize the bad news. And it's amazing news. And so you think Christmas is so hopeful because it reminds us that God is both transcendent, high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. He is transcendent and He is imminent. God with us. He came in flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. He stooped low to enter into our darkness and draw us into His light by grace. 
This Son of God entered into our world to speak into it. And He sovereignly called to His sheep and they've recognized His voice. And you think about the assembly that we have here this morning, that the church, the ecclesia, is an assembly of the called out ones from the world. Called out of that darkness into His light. Made to hear His voice. And all of a sudden, I once was spiritually blind and deaf, but now I see and now I hear. I hear the voice of the shepherd calling to me. That's what we are as a, val- as a body of believers this morning. Those who trust in Christ by faith. You've been called out by grace by the good shepherd. Called out by this preeminent, co-eternal member of the Godhead. It's amazing when you think about it. And how Jesus stooped low and now we're united to Christ by faith and to his body, the church. And we're united to each other as we've been looking at in John 15. I'm the vine and you're the branches and the branches are to love and care for one another. And as a flock, as fellow branches united to the same vine, as a family, as one body of faith. Romans 12 verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And you think about what this means. It means that you're never alone. If you are part of the family of God, you are never alone ever again. For all eternity. You have brothers and sisters in this world right now. And you have the hope of heaven. And you're never alone again. And even if you're physically alone, you have the Spirit that's coming and comforting you and reminding you of whose you are. The message of Christmas is you're never alone ever again. It's it's so comforting when you think about it. Look at the first half of verse 18. Christ is sovereign over his church, this group of called out ones. And now we're told that he is firstborn of something else, firstborn from the dead. Here's what Matthew Henry said. He said, all our hopes and joys take their rise from him who is the author of our salvation. Not that he was the first who ever rose from the dead, but the first and only one who rose by his own power and was declared to be the Son of God and Lord of all things. And he is the head of the resurrection and has given us an example and evidence of our resurrection from the dead. He rose as the first fruits. What this reminds us of this morning is that the manger, the incarnation, the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection, they all come as a package deal in the plan of redemption. The manger, the cross, the empty tomb, they're all together. They come as a package deal. And the result, what is the results of this work? It's the second half of verse 18. It says that in everything he might be preeminent. Again, here's what Kent Hughes said. Everything extends to his firstness, to as wide a scope as is conceivable and beyond. There is no room for a parliament of religions here. Only Christ preeminent. He must have first place in everything. So now the question comes, as you probably noticed... Does Christ occupy the first place in your life? It says that He is preeminent in all things. Does He occupy the first place in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your dating relationships, in your school, in your job, how you spend your money and time, athletics, what you watch on TV or the internet? Is Christ the first place? Or are you still occupying the first place and only giving Jesus a participation trophy when your plans fail and you need him? Is he the first in your life? Are you thinking, how is this going to bring honor to Christ, 
the one who has sought me out and saved me? Or are you just doing what you want? And then when your plans fail and you live in like your own little prideful God, when your self-salvation project fails, you go run to Jesus and you'll give him a little participation trophy. Say, Lord, could you please come and help me over here? And then he'll put you back on the shelf. Christ is the king. He is preeminent. Is Christ, does he occupy the first place in your family? You see, verse 19 only drives home the importance of Christ's preeminence. Look at what verse 19 says. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And verse 20 reminds us of just how necessary it was for the only begotten, eternal, divine Son of God to come in flesh, to reconcile all things to himself and make peace by the blood of his cross. Remember, no manger, no cross. The two hang together. He came in flesh to die in our place. No manger, no cross. They come together. We see the phrase, all things, used again when speaking of Christ's work of reconciliation. That the all things that were created in Him and through Him, because He is before all things, those things were broken by the fall. And instead of peace, there was war. There was enmity between a holy God and fallen humanity. All of creation groaned. But now, through the cross, this is the good news, through the cross and the resurrection, not our work, not our effort, not our merit, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. This one who came in flesh and dwelt among us, who lived the, the life that we could never live, the holy, righteous life, died the death that we deserve because he was treated as a sinner on our behalf, went into the grave, and rose again as the first fruits. So it makes the gospel just, it's what makes it just pop, makes it come alive. When suddenly you see that apart from the manger, I have no hope. But thanks be to God that he came and dwelt among us. He came for you. For while we were still yet at our weakest, Christ died for the ungodly. You take it to the bank. So it makes Christmas just amazing when we think about it. In the incarnation. We have peace with God. That's the good news of the gospel. Here's again what Tim Keller said. He said, Christmas means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, peace with God is available. And if you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. And the more people who embrace the gospel and do that, the better off the world is. Christmas, therefore, means the increase of peace, both with God and between people across the face of the world. Again, he goes on and says, if Christmas is just a nice legend, in a sense you're on your own. But if Christmas is true, then you can be saved by grace. It's amazing. The free hope and offer of the gospel. And so I, here, as a minister of the gospel, I lay that before you. If you are here and you are clinging to your own self-salvation project, you're clinging to, oh, I can do this all by myself, and I just need to live a good life. Stop. Get off the treadmill. Repent. You need a Savior. You're trying to be a manager, but you need a Savior. I call you to Christ. Call you to this God. Fully divine Son of God who entered into this darkness. And we trust Him by faith. Do you trust Him by faith this morning? Are you really just trusting in yourself? 
and just giving Jesus a little pat and a nod, and you take him off like a book and use him, and then you put him back up when you're done. That's not how the gospel works. Do you realize that you need a Savior? Because you see, the message of Christmas is not try harder. If it was, we would all fall short. The message of Christmas is not try harder. What's the message? Fear not. Why? Because your King and Redeemer has come. That's the message of Christmas. Not try harder. Go pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be a good little boy. Be a good little girl. Or else, God Claus is watching. Don't work like that. You are a bad boy. You are a bad girl. You need a Savior. The message of Christmas is fear not. Because your King has come and He loves you. And He's made a way. Think about what happened in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, What? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. He made peace by the blood of His cross. That's what He came to do. He came to die in your place. It's amazing news when you think about it. Let me wrap it up here. Here's what the Gospel Transformation Study Bible said. Really helpful little footnote. He said, Here is the awe-inspiring mystery of the God-man, Jesus Christ. He who threw out the stars with his hands also had nails driven through those hands to reconcile us who were once alienated, hostile, and evil. Now we are all considered holy and blameless before God through Christ's sinless life and sacrificial work on the cross. Christians are called by Paul to remember their hope in the Lord Jesus and to remain steadfast in their walk. We think about this song that we're going to sing here in just a minute. It calls us to do something after the Lord's Supper. It calls us to do something. Come behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the King, He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, who took on flesh to ransom us. And we think about the hope of this, and why does this matter, and what hope do we have in this life? How do we know that God really is that good? How do we know that He came and did that? Look no further than the table set before you. This God who came in flesh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He came and He dwelt among us. This man, Jesus Christ, who came to live the life that you couldn't live and died the death that you deserved so that you could have grace and mercy and forgiveness. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And we think about the hope that this brings.